Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 230 with my guest Derek Block. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a doctor. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. There's a forum. You can take surveys uh, and share things about your lives with us. Um, you can... Um, Support the show financially there. You can read blogs, all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, there was another shooting this week, as everybody knows, in uh, in South Carolina. And I, I don't even know what to say because it's just um, who knows what, what drives somebody to do something like that. Um, but it bums me out when people focus when people try to make it solely a gun issue because I think primarily it's a mental health issue um anyway that's my that's my take on it who knows what what made that person do that um was it hate was it mental illness I I, I don't know but um in my opinion 99% of the mass shootings that you see it's mental illness related. Anyway, thoughts and, and prayers with the um, the survivors of uh, of that. It just it feels so trite to talk about it because all I can think to say is the stuff that everybody else is saying. And I debated whether or not to even address it, but I feel like since this podcast is about mental health, uh, I felt obliged to say something, but now i just feel like I said nothing. Anyway, 
we're off to a good start. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Forgotten Gypsy. About her depression, she writes, I envy people who laugh with their hearts. I wish I knew what it felt like when the best I can pass off is a small smile or a smirk. Boy, do I relate to that. I love the feeling of uh, just being able to laugh un- unselfconsciously. Um, about her anger issue, she writes, I take a lot of shit, but when I snap, it's like a tornado hitting a trailer park. No double wide, too big for me to take down. Snapshot from her life. Having an alcoholic addict mother and an absent father, I was the child no one wanted, but everyone had to deal with. No one knew how to, de- how to deal with me. I failed a drug test at seven years old because my mother would get me high, and I had mastered rolling her joints by eight. Wow. Wow. This is from a woman who calls herself Awful Lot of Falafel. I love that name. About her anorexia, she writes, Nothing tastes as good as numb feels. That's pretty profound. About her OCD, she writes, Like the never-ending itch I can't quite reach. Uh, A woman calling herself My PMDD Life writes, um, PMDD is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. She writes, Once a month my ovaries spit out an egg and my real self disappears. Severe depression and unrelenting suicidal ideation take over. Then I get my period and it suddenly disappears. I don't know if I'm mentally ill or physically sick, but I'm exhausted by having to save my life once a month, every month, no exceptions. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself the real me about his depression. He writes, like I am screaming my throat raw and no sound is coming out. Then I realize I'm just being ignored about his anxiety. Afraid that everything I worry about will actually happen. A woman calling herself the most emotional, emotionless person. A snapshot from her life. She has OCD. and uh, Actually, she's a teenager. And uh, she writes, uh, I touched the bottom of a pool with my tongue when I was maybe eight. In parentheses, weird kid, I know. Um, as it was being refilled uh, for months, I had urges so strong to touch it again and again and again because it needed to be an even amount of times. I could have drowned a couple of times. A uh, woman calling herself Float Away the Pain writes about her codependency. My happiness depends on whether or not you will text me today. I know a lot of people who uh, feel that exact same way. Um, This is a teenage girl who calls herself crusty fucking earwax. And uh, about her depression, she writes, no one told me that feeling nothing would feel this bad. That, that is profound. That is profound. That is, that encapsulates it for me. About her anxiety, she writes, I worry about what everyone thinks when they look at me, even though I don't feel worthy enough to be looked at at all. And about her OCD, she writes, my brain itches and I can't reach into my skull to scratch it, so instead, I tap the wall again and again and again. And finally, this is from a uh, woman who calls herself E is for Elephant, and about her love addiction, she writes, when I tell him he's a good man and deserving of being loved, I'm starting to wonder which one of us I'm really trying to convince. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy. 
but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp, didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. I'm here with Derek Block, who was raised in the Church of Scientology. Uh, you're not familiar with the podcast, but you heard about it from one of the Scientology mes- message boards on a website called what? The Underground Bunker. The Underground. It's, sorry, it's run by Tony Ortega. He blogs about Scientology. There's a bunch of followers on there, and somebody replied to one of my comments and mentioned your podcast. That's how I found out about it. Well, I'm glad you got in touch with me because I I have been wanting to talk uh, with somebody who uh, was raised in Scientology. Where to begin with your story? How old are you? Um, I am 28. I'll be 29 in July. Okay. And uh, you were raised where? In what started in Texas, and then uh, from there we moved to L.A., and that's when your family got involved with Scientology? Uh, they got involved before we moved to L.A. and back in Texas uh, when I was about six. And uh, my dad, as he moved up the levels, wanted to be closer, I guess, to like the hub of Scientology, which is essentially what L.A. is, one of them, and then Clearwater, Florida is the other. Okay. So he figured he wanted to go to L.A. What are your earliest, how many kids in your family? There's three. I have a brother and a sister. My sister's three years younger. My brother's eight years younger than me. Okay. And what are your first memories of... Um Scientology. Well, I was about, I mean, like I said, I was six, so I was very young. What I can remember is probably the first things that they kind of taught us were um, assists, they're called. It's sort of like a faith healing procedure where um, you touch different body parts or um, you like give, it's like a, not really a massage, but you sort of run your fingers along someone in certain areas and that's supposed to help them heal. And then there's another one called a contact assist, which is where you're supposed to go back to the thing that hurt you. So if you got burned or something, when your finger doesn't hurt anymore, and obviously when the object's cooled off, you're supposed to touch your finger to it again to sort of relive the experience, which is supposed to help get rid of the painful memories and cure you. And did any of that ever work for you? Um, Probably like a placebo type effect. I mean, mostly it's like when your mom kisses your boo-boo when you're a kid. I mean, that's mm-hmm. pretty much what it was to me. Yeah. Um, so what are, what are some memories you have of, uh, your childhood, uh, not, doesn't necessarily have to be science, Scientology related. Cause I'd, I'd also like to get a picture of what your family was like, you know, outside sure. of, uh, Scientology. Sure. I have, um, I have three aunts on my mom's side and then I haven't, I had an aunt and an uncle, but my aunt passed away on my dad's side and now I just have my, an uncle and my dad. And, um, I used to spend a lot of time with my aunt Brenda, who's on my dad's side that passed away. And then, uh, a lot of time with my mom's aunts. I didn't, and I spent time with my uncle when I was younger, but as my parents got more involved, I spent less and you know, it, mm-hmm. we became more insular. So I spent less and less time with them. I have a lot of cousins. Um, I mean, my, I think about 12, 11 or 12 on my mom's side. And then 
I have just two on my dad's side. My dad's family was small. And where in Texas were you? It's a city called Tyler. It's in Northeast Texas. Um, It's about two hours east of Dallas. It's a nice little city. When I was there, when I was younger, it was very small. I've been back to visit recently and it's grown a lot. But um, my granddad was out in the country and I have a lot of good memories, you know, being out in the wilderness. And and even though I've been in the city for so long, there's still a lot of country in me, you know. So and I do enjoy it every once in a while going camping and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I was raised um on the border of a forest preserve and there was something so great about having nature right at your back door when you were a kid. You know, and in those days parent parents just opened the door at nine in the morning in the summer and yeah. you were supposed to be home for lunch or dinner and you would just play in the in the woods and let your imagination run wild and and uh yeah it was it was cool it definitely uh instilled a love of uh of nature yeah absolutely i used to spend a lot of time running away from wasps and i got stung i got stung once when i was a kid fortunately i've been able to avoid it and then you know some i got cut by barbed wire and played with animals and the whole you know real country upbringing It was a lot of fun. So um, in your early years, would you describe your family unit as kind of safe and nurturing? Or how, how would you describe it? Um, I I liked spending time away from home. My parents were always, especially my dad, was very overbearing disciplinary-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't – I mean, back then it was different than what we know now about how we treat kids. So, yeah, I got spanked. You know, I got spanked a lot. I mean, my mom – would use whatever was available. My dad typically used the belt, you know, to mm-hmm. spank us. And um, unfortunately, it was for sometimes ridiculous things. Like my sister and I would be talking after bedtime, you know. And I spent a lot of time. I got pitted against my sister a lot. We we're kind of in competition with each other with my parents. Um, I typically won, which is that's why it's kind of ironic that I'm the one now that's left Scientology, you know, of the kids. Um, They're still. They're still in it. Yeah, my whole family's still in. Well, not my extended family, but my immediate family is still involved. And um, at one point, was more of your family involved in it? Um, my aunt Brenda was involved, and she strayed from the church towards the end too. Okay, and that's the yeah. one that passed. Yeah, she's yeah. the one that passed, and um, she's the only other member that got involved. Okay, with Scientology. Uh, so, give me paint more of a picture of your family life, so I can kind of understand what, if anything, changed when you started get, getting involved in in Scientology um or is there no discernible difference for you um I I remember let me see I mean I some things did change when my brother was born is when my sister and I I think both noticed the biggest difference because the way they raised my brother Scientology teaches that kids are are young are basically adults in little bodies I mean you're supposed to be an immortal being that's you know lived trillions of years and so um, they assume that kids don't need much parenting other than make sure they don't hurt themselves. But other than that, you know, it's hands off. So my brother didn't get disciplined nearly as much as we did. And um, I don't know whether the discipline was good for me or, you know, I can't really say because I don't do a lot of what if thinking. I think that gets yeah. you into a bad place. So um, I just know that I was disciplined a lot more and my sister was disciplined a lot more than my little brother was. That's probably the biggest change that I noticed. Um, and then also my parents just not being around as much. I mean, my mom was a stay-at-home mother, and then my dad was in, you know, was he, he was at work a lot. He ran his own accounting firm for a while. Um, but when he, I found out from his brother recently that he got deeply in debt really quickly with Scientology when we were young. And I didn't, obviously I didn't know this at the time, but that's why he was gone all the time. I mean, he was mm-hmm. always asking people for money and 
And so I noticed my mom eventually had to get a job. And then I noticed my parents just weren't around. I mean, they were always working. And then, of course, as they got more involved in Scientology, they were less involved with us. So it's sort of, I would hardly ever see them anymore. And it got, I mean, it got worse as I got into my teenage years. My mom started working for um, Scientology and she would be gone, you know, all night. And I would never see her. And who was the person who initially um, connected to Scientology? Your dad? It was my dad, yeah. Yeah. Um, They have a group called WISE. It's short for World Institute of Scientology Enterprises. And, uh, you know, they love, I don't know, you know, Scientology loves acronyms. Everything's anachronized. Mm -hmm. So I, um, so I, as far as I know, he got involved that way. They visit him at work and they have this Hubbard management technology. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder, obviously, it's named after him. Yeah, I watched the uh, documentary on HBO. Okay. All right, yeah. that's great. Yeah, it was really good. I loved it. Yeah. Um, so they have the Hubbard management technology. They were selling my dad on it and they hadn't yet got accountants. They usually get dentists and chiropractors. Those are the people they go for. My dad was the first accountant that took on the Hubbard management technology. And so they basically put him up as a poster child for this um, through wise. And so he, his ego was being fed and my dad's very narcissistic person. So excuse me, narcissistic person. So he um, loved it. I mean, he just fell with it. And then that's pretty much how he got sucked in. And my mom is very, um, I don't want to say obedient, but she follows my dad and everything he does. So she she just went with it. And her family questioned it, I know, a lot. I mean, especially her mother. My grandmother questioned it a lot. And that's why we sort of became insular, because of that questioning. Why uh, the high number of dentists and chiropractors? Um, I'm not sure. I Chiropractors, I think, because of their... It's it's sort of like a faith healing thing too, you know, because I none see. of it's founded in science. Their body intuition. Yeah, so it's sort of it's not really founded in science particularly. It sort of involves a little bit of you know just trusting that natural healing is a good thing. So they sort of get sucked in that way because Scientology is very anti drugs and anti you know anti medical doctors and all of that stuff. So I know that that about the chiropractors. I don't know about dentists how they keep getting involved, but I think it's just the nature of their practice. How it's usually a single doctor that runs the practice. And he owns it, so it's easier to infiltrate than, let's say, a hospital, you know? Yeah. So uh, tell me some stories about your experience. Um, well, when I was young, when I was probably about 12, I think was that's when I realized I was gay. I started puberty about that, 11, 12. And, um, but prior to that, you know, I kind of knew already, based, you know, in the Dianetics book and stuff, that Scientology is very anti gay. I mean, extremely, and my dad is too. And, you know, he used to say nasty things when I was a kid. So I already knew that that was a bad thing in my mind. So I knew to keep that secret. Um, What'd that feel like? It was tough for a long time. Um, I never doubted the fact that I was gay. I never tried to pretend like I was straight. Um, I was sort of, as far as my parents were concerned, I was, uh, I don't know what the word is, um, just not interested sexually in anything. I never talked to them about my sex life or my romantic life or anything. Um, so do you it was, think they knew? Um, do you- I do because parents always know. Um, they sort of found out a little bit because um, at one point, so this is kind of skipping ahead. I, I hope you don't mind if we jump yeah, around. Yeah, on that's the, fine. Okay, so um, skipping ahead, I joined the Sea Org, um, which I'm sure you know about from the documentary. That was is, the ship? Yeah, um, I didn't work on the ship, but okay. um, at this time it was based there. They have those buildings in in Hollywood. The big blue ones, they call it big blue or pack, pack base, short for Pacific Area Command Base, is what the Scientologists refer to it as. 
And so there it's all run by Sea Org members. So I worked there for a few years and then I was sent to Flag, which is in Clearwater, Florida. That's their flagship um, building. And there um, I was on what's called the TTC, which is Technical Training Corps. And I was basically learning to be a supervisor, which you walk around and make sure people are doing their courses correctly is what you do. And so um, there I got involved with somebody else that was there from the UK. We sort of developed a relationship. It wasn't sexual in nature. It was, you know, just intimate. We were very intimate. And one night we were laying in bed together and I, one of the other guys that was in the room with us had caught us and wrote a big old report. And that was, um, what's the acronym for that report when you find KR, it? It's called a KR. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, there no, is. It's a knowledge report. Um, yeah. you're, there's Scientology is a tattletale culture. I mean, they, they like to rat people out left and right. That's they how they maintain that. their leverage. It is. It, that's exactly right. That's how they keep control over you. And so I knew at that point where he, when he saw us, you know, it's, over. So um I eventually got kicked out, which is better than the alternative, which would which would have been the RPF or short for Rehabilitation Project Force. Um that's essentially like a slave labor camp where you go for reprogramming. Um to put it in I guess non Scientology terms. They make it sound like it's a retreat and, you know, a religious retreat and you go and have a great time, but you eat scraps from, you know, people and it's bad. It's just real bad. You sleep in the boiler room. It's terrible. It's like Paul Pot without the rice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. So, um, I went, so I got sent out, I got kicked out, basically sent back home. And, um, so that's how my dad found out kind of, I had this relationship with this other guy and I, you know, that was a big, that was a, a huge, how do you say it? You said you got sent home? I got sent home. For and, good? Um, yeah. They kicked me out of the Sea Org. They didn't want me there Did anymore. they kick you out of Scientology? No, not at okay. that point. Um, I was still for a few years, eight years after that, I pretended to be a Scientologist, you know, but I was distancing myself the whole time because I knew in my head, like I said, I never questioned, um, my sexual orientation. I knew that I was gay and I knew that that's what it was and that I wasn't going to be able to change that. Um, and did you know that it was okay to be gay outside of Scientology or did I didn't, you, I had so no you believe the whole world looked at you the way Scientology looked at I you? I believe they would. Yeah. I did. I was very afraid uh, for a long time about how people would. And, and I kind of came out at a good time because it was a lot more accepted than in the 90s, you know. But even back in the 90s, it was still more accepting than Scientology. And But my dad, obviously, he was very against it. I mean, he was very upset. Um, even at one point, he suggested I commit suicide if I couldn't be straight, you know. Really? Yeah. It was, I mean, it was intense. And my what did dad that, was. What that feel like? It hurt. Um, I mean, I can't. So at that point, I realized that I was not that I had nobody that cared about me. Um, I realized that my parents loved me conditionally. I mean, it was at this point that it really dawned on me that my parents were willing to get rid of me um, if they needed to, you know, and I felt I mean, all my safety, not that I had much, but all my safety blankets were gone. I was terrified. Um, I hadn't, and I even did contemplate suicide at one point when I was about 18 years old. When I was 18, that's when all this happened when I was 18. Um, this is before I got a job and everything. I, I had sat down and contemplated suicide. I actually sat on my dad's bed with, you know, his revolver in my hand. And, um, you know, I had the bullet sitting next to me and I was kind of, 
I, I never actually loaded them in the gun, you know, but I was really seriously contemplating it. And then I was probably sitting there for two or three hours, you know, home alone. And um, I don't I don't know what happened. I just thought that if nobody else cares about me, at least I can care about myself. You know, at least I can be there for myself. And, you know, what's the point? I mean, I have so much more to live for. What's the point of ending it all now? And that's not even going to be satisfying. I, you know, at first I thought it would be satisfying to, you know, for my parents to come home and find me dead and, you know, make them feel like crap. But then I kind of realized that that um, I... I wouldn't be satisfied. I mean, I'd be dead. I'm not going to know what happened. <laughs> so I sort of realized that I think the best way to do this is to just fly under the radar for as long as I can, you know, kind of ride on my parents' support for now. As long as they believe I won't be interested in Scientology, they'll support me. And then I eventually got a job and, you know, I was able to get myself out of Scientology. But that was probably the darkest point in my life um, is when I was sitting on that bed holding that gun in my hand because I, I seriously thought about ending it all right there. And I'm happy that I did it. You know, I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. Well, we'll get into those uh, yeah. later, but let's let's rewind back to where we were before we skipped ahead. Yes. Um, tell me some experiences and so probably the first experience I had in Scientology was not a bad one. Um, I was a very young, I was probably eight, seven or eight years old. Um, and I was studying how there's different courses they have for kids that are targeted to kids. They have pretty pictures in them and stuff. And so, um, I learned how to use a dictionary. Um, I learned the Scientology way of studying things. They have a very specific way you study things. And, um, one of them is that you, you demonstrate concepts with blocks and stuff, or you draw it on paper, you know, and, you go through the you go through the books and you do these different drills. Like one of them is learning the alphabet backwards, which to this day I still know it, you know, off the top of my head backwards. And um, so it was fun, you know. And that was around other kids, and we got to play. And when we weren't on course, it was a good time. And I I enjoyed it right up until um, I was pro I think I was thirteen or fourteen years old. Thirteen years old. There's a course called the Personal Values and Integrity Course. And it's supposed to teach you personal values and integrity. So one of them, Scientology has this thing they call an overt and withhold write-up. Overt and withholds are things that, you're, that you've done that are bad, that people may or may not know about, but that you need to confess. Um, it's sort of like sins. Mm -hmm. And so the confessionals in Scientology are written down. At least this version of it is written down on paper. Well, I should say all of them are written down on paper. Some of them are also recorded on video and an audio but um these you just write on a piece of paper what you did and there's specific format to it and um so i had to do one of those and at the end of it you're supposed to get what's called a, a floating needle on the e-meter that they use which is that uh it's like a primitive lie detector it's a little thing that has a dial on it um, just for people that don't know about it. Um, so you hold the cans on this e-meter. They ask you, you know, have, has, have you, I can't remember the exact question, but it's pretty much, have you, have you been truthful about everything or is this everything, you know, is this all of it? And if your needle floats, then you're done. And so I'm, you know, I had been watching gay porn since I was like 12, you know, 12, mm -hmm. 13 years old. I've been watching gay porn and I was like, I have to tell them. But I don't want them to know that I'm, you know, I'm I'm still a little kid and I'm terrified of what my parents are going to say or do to me if they find out. So thankfully, I managed to just write down I was watching porn and it wasn't I didn't say what kind, you know, I let them assume. And somehow I got by with that. And so that that was probably the most terrifying experience. 
uh, because I went to sit on the e-meter a couple of times and the needle, you know, my needle wouldn't float. And I was terrified that I was going to have to write that down and it was going to come out. And um, that was that was when everything turned from being fun to being this is not as fun anymore. That's probably um, and that's when I kind of realized that this is not, you know, from this point forward, this is not going to be something I enjoy. It's, you know, the more I hear about Scientology, it sounds like it, it really attracts people who um, don't do well with nuanced thinking, you know, with, with people like narcissists typically tend to have a very black and white view of the world. And it seems like um, cults tend to attract people that have an all or nothing kind of view of dealing with things. Yes. Yeah, you're exactly right. I did for a long time suffer from black and white thinking. And even after I still catch myself sometimes now with that, um, I'm trying to remember some, some other, Oh, so there was a, a, a thing I did called the Purif, which I don't know if you've heard of. It's the purification rundown is the full name. Um, basically you sit in a sauna for five hours and you're supposed to sweat out toxins and um, I remember doing that for, I did that for probably a month, a month and a half. And you sit in the sauna for five hours a day. And I kind of. How do you not die? You're just drinking tons of water yeah. and electrolytes? Yeah. And they give you, they give you that. And then they give you vitamins and stuff that you're supposed to take. Probably the most controversial part of it besides sitting in the sauna is the fact that you have to take niacin. It's called, and you take loads of it. I mean, I was probably taking 5,000 milligrams a day at the end, which um, there's not a lot of, you know, science on what that causes. But, um, you know, I have dry skin problems now. I don't remember having those before, so I think that might be linked to it. I but. have a friend who swears by niacin for his depression. He takes a shitload of it. Yeah. And he was trying to get me to take it, and I've, I've never... I've never tried it. But. It's it's like any vitamin. I mean, I don't really... I'm a very... I want to say... I'm not into that, like, taking vitamins and all of that stuff. Not that I don't, you know, think being healthy is bad, but... Um, I think that if you take vitamins when you don't need them, it can have bad side effects, you know? And I think unless a doctor says you're deficient in a particular vitamin, there's no reason to take it. Why would you be taking it? So, and recently, you know, they found links to cancer and stuff with taking too much vitamin A. Mm. So I don't know what effects niacin has on, you know, the human body, but I was taking loads of it and it causes like a, a flush and they tell you it's supposed to be radiation leaving your body. And it was all like real fun for me. I mean, I had never, I just got to hang out in a sauna all day and read books what did you think the first time you realized how far off from actual science Scientology actually is? Um, I probably, I probably realized that when I was in high school, when I was in ninth grade and I was studying about, you know, learning little bits about physics and stuff. What did um, you, what do you think or feel in that moment? I mean, the only word I can think to describe it is cognitive dissonance. I mean, it's a really uncomfortable feeling when you realize something that you've been raised in and you've held on to really hard is now wrong. And it causes, and the only name I've ever found for that feeling is cognitive dissonance. I mean, it's a very uncomfortable, like, moment. And I never was able to reconcile it. Was there ever dread on your part that you wouldn't be able to... um speak scientific truth around your family that you would have to keep pretending around them? It was very difficult. Um, when I got out of the Sea Org and when I, you know, when I was back in the real world again, I started to read about, you know, scientific. I've always been fascinated by 
um, the universe and nature and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, and weather, when I was a kid, I was into weather and dinosaurs. You know, it was all stuff that I thought was really cool, but it was very difficult for me to have that knowledge and to have my parents refuse it so wholeheartedly. I mean, they would say things that were just completely scientifically inaccurate. Like what? Um, what what's the Scientology's view on dinosaurs? Um, they don't have a particular. Oh well, supposedly <laughs> it's crazy stuff. This is so. This is where it's going to kind of get into the craziness of Scientology. So Scientologists believe that you're trillion years old and that. Outside of the Earth, the, the whole universe is populated by advanced beings who have ships and stuff that fly around. So in the there's like these volumes called these research and discovery volumes, which have all kinds of stories from L. Ron Hubbard. And um, they believe that the dinosaurs were hunted to extinction by aliens. That's what they think. And then after the dinosaurs were hunted to extinction, then people were... Uh, uh, human bodies were able to evolve and then that's when Xenu comes and sends all the spirits here to take over the human bodies. And Xenu is like what? The Jesus of Scientology or what? The opposite. He's more like the devil. Oh, okay. Yeah, supposedly I don't know how deep into this you want to go but um, supposedly back in you know, I think how many? 78 trillion years? I don't remember. So many trillions of years ago, Xenu um found that there were people inside of his society that he ran. He's the galactic overlord um, that were causing an up, a rebellion, an uprising. And they were artists. Most of them were artists and creative thinkers. And so he rounded Communist up. sympathizers. <laughs> I know. Seriously. This is, I mean, I'm telling you, this gets crazy. Third, but you can third t- column. I know. When you think or is of- it fifth column? What column is it that, uh, that when they talk about, uh, you know, people that uh, are, are infiltrating I think it's third column. Anyway, go ahead. Um, I so I oh that's another thing I was going to say. So speaking of communism, you can kind of tell, and I can tell now when I reflect on it that this was all created in you know the fifties, sixties, seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell Hubbard was of that mindset when he made all this. Um, so he rounded these people up, you know, through supposedly he said they were going to do their taxes or something. And so he called them all up, put them in ice cubes, froze them and dropped them in volcanoes and bombed the whole planet. And then the spirits were released, but he put like a shield around earth. And so the beings were captured by the shield and stuck on earth. And we're still stuck here today. And supposedly the only way to get through the shield is with Scientology, of course. And then when you leave, you know, when you finish, your levels or whatever in Scientology, your OT levels, you can exit the shield and go on to other planets and stuff. So these, so we've been stuck here for X trillions of years. And um, like my dad, my, for example, my parents, um, they wouldn't even believe that the space, the space station's even possible because how could you, you can't get anything through that shield and the shield is supposedly 50 miles above earth. And I mean, the space station orbits at what, like 150 miles, I think. So it's got to be impossible. So my, you know, they, my, my parents were very into this conspiratorial mindset, you know, flat earth theory and all this stuff. What what does it feel like as you, as you say all these things? I feel like I'm a nutcase. I mean, I can't believe I believed any of this, but, but you I were a child. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And you know, when I was 18, I kind of realized, and I would listen to my, when I was a kid, I would listen to my dad's stories about spaceships and stuff like that. And about how he used to be an engineer and I'd be fascinated with it. And my dad has a voice like me. I sound a lot like him. It's, you know, baritone, and you can kind of listen to it for a while. And so he would tell these great stories and stuff. And for me, it was a cool thing. And But then when I was 18, it was kind of like, this is weird. Like, 
you know, they actually believe these things. And when I finally read the Xenu story and I realized my dad has done OT3, I mean, my, I was like, how, how can you believe this? I mean, my dad's not stupid. That's the part that how I know. How do you explain that? How do you explain that a otherwise rational person, is it that they so desperately want to believe? I think so. Um, I think uh, they, I mean, it's, uh, I can't remember all the psychological principles, but I, you know, I've read a lot about psychology. I just do it for, you know, mm-hmm. just for my own sake. And so it's sort of like the, the, how you ask for you, you know, you have somebody pay for something and they like it more because they paid for it. Mm-hmm. And the more they pay for it, the more they like it. Scientology is a very step-by-step process. I mean, when you start off, it's not crazy and they make sure not to, um, the Scientologists, themselves are very careful not to expose newbies to stuff like they that. They don't go Xenu out of the gate. No. No, and in fact, Xenu, I mean, you don't even find out that story, I think it's a, until you pay like 500000 or $600,000, and then they show you that story. Well, how is an average person supposed to uh, move up all the levels? Well, supposedly, so Scientology is saying the, their aims and goals, they say they make the able more able. So they only want people that are able right off the bat, you know. So they they look for people that have this kind of money. And, um, I mean, and it's over years. You know, it's not like they say, give us $500,000 today. My dad, it probably took him, I want to say, 15 years or so to get up to OT3. I mean, so $500,000 over 15 years is not as much. What's OT stand for? Operating Thetan. So um, I'll explain that if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so the idea is that Thetans have had all their na- natural abilities taken away uh, by Xenu. And so you gain them back when you do these levels. So as a Thetan, you become operating is the idea. And the Thetan is the name for the spirit, which I'm sure you know already, but for the listeners that don't know, I don't even know where to begin. It's so out there. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking out there. And yeah. watching that documentary, I could, I could, uh, I wanted that documentary to go on for six hours. It was so, I was so completely, uh, just couldn't believe that rational human beings were falling for this shit. Yeah, they do. I mean, my dad's not an idiot. You know, I'm, I mean, from what I remember as a kid, he's smart. I mean, he taught me a lot of stuff that I know. Well, you know, Paul Haggis. Yeah. A, and he got way up there, too. Incredibly smart guy. And uh, I guess when you get to the, for some people, when they hit the certain levels, then it gets, I think he said when he read that book, when yeah. he maybe read the Xenu book, I think, was that when he, was that when he, I know it was when his, his one of his kids came out as, didn't one of his kids come out as gay, and um, that was where he broke with them? With Paul Haggis, what happened is that the San Diego Church of Scientology, they came, they gave money in support of Proposition 8. That's it. Yeah, and so he was upset by that. And, I mean, I don't know how he didn't know about Scientology's anti-gay stance yeah. up until that point. It's pretty, I mean, it's not like it's a secret. They're like the Westboro Baptists, but they're quiet about it, you know? They think that, that gays and psychiatrists are probably the worst people in the universe. And so, and I mean that literally the universe. <laughs> so they, um, I mean, I don't know how he didn't realize that up until that point, but he did. And, and his story in the New York Times was a big part of my decision eventually to just come out with my story. I would like to go undercover as a gay psychiatrist with a huge <laughs> amount of money. 
<laughs> oh, they'll take it. I know, but it would be just be interesting to to see how they would uh, how they would deal with it. Um, so tell me some more uh, experiences from this. Let's see. Well, when I was uh, fourteen, they uh, so after you go, Scientologists have Scientologists have regular gatherings. They're called events, and everybody goes and sits together and listens to the leader speak. It used to be. And I can remember a shift in the Scientology leadership, too, thinking back on it. Um, it used to be several leaders would speak, and then eventually it became David Miscavige was the only one that would speak at these events. And um, I, I remember thinking to myself, I mean, it was three hours of this one guy talking. Where are all the other people? That that guy is the creepiest motherfucker I think I have ever seen. It's uh, I don't think I've ever seen such naked megalomania as as that guy it was if i were watching a movie i would think oh you know the megalomania is a little over the top yeah that gigantic stage with just him i know it was like citizen kane yeah it's it's crazy absolutely crazy but the thing is that scientologists look at that 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 maniacal look as that's an ot that you being powerful it's a good thing because if you look at the OTs, they have that same look, that thousand-yard stare, that, like, I'm looking right through you, not looking away, um, w- eyes wide open. It's Some people think that because um, you get taught that you have body thetans stuck to you, that the OT levels cause sort of a schizophrenic-type situation because you think that you're thousands of people in one body. And, um, you know, so it sort of induces a, a psychosis just believing that. I mean, can you imagine? I read an interview um Somebody was interviewing Tom Cruise, and this was maybe, I don't know, like 10 years ago, and they described how awkward they felt because his eye contact was so, um, it was, uh, they, they just, it it was just intense, it, intense, and it never ceased, and he was constantly like laughing and smiling, trying to get the same response from that other. There was like a complete disconnect between what two people were experiencing in a conversation. Yeah. As if he wasn't picking up, you know, there were like no social cues of. Um, Scientology has, uh, this is one of the things that I learned when I was younger. Um, I did something called the TRs and objectives. TRs are short for training routines. And objectives are these things where you walk around a room and touch objects, and it's supposed to help you um, come to present time. It's supposed to free you up from your past and allow you to receive auditing in the future. It's one of the first steps that you do. And so, but basically all it is, you walk around and touch stuff in the room, and it's really not that exciting. So, but the TRs I was going to tell you are the reason that Tom Cruise looks like that. Um, they teach you to, they have uh, TR zero, which is one where you sit and you just stare at another person for two hours and you're supposed to do it without flinching, blinking, without your eyes watering. I mean, it, and it puts you into this weird trance. I mean, I can remember sometimes the whole room would disappear. I would hallucinate. It's crazy. This TR zero thing and parts of your body will hurt and you'll want to shift. But if you shift, then the two hours starts over. Oh my. My God. Yeah, so it is completely nuts. And that's why Scientologists have that stare. But there's one that follows called TR0 bull bait. And What's the last word? Bull bait. Like, B- uh, B-U-L-L-B-A-I-T? Yeah, like uh, matadors do. Like, okay. you know, you try to get the bull to come after you. I see. You're trying to get a reaction from the person. So it's you, you sit across from someone else, and they're very close to you, and they're trying to get a reaction out of you. And it, you're supposed to sit there and not react. And again, it's for probably, I mean, you do this for an hour, 30 minutes 
minutes, whatever. They try to find what are called buttons that set you off. Uh, any kind of reaction, you know, whether you blink or flinch or, and they'll do, I mean, sometimes it's crazy. They, they'll touch you sometimes and sometimes it's uncomfortable places. I mean, just to try to get a reaction out of you. And, um, that teach, I think that teaches them to shut off their empathy. So, you know, it teaches a Scientologist not to feel what the other person's feeling. So that way you, you don't react to the other person's emotion, which is why, again, that disconnect, that'll explain that disconnect for you. He's learned not to react to the way other people are. He's, solely acting how you know he's responding to his own conversation regardless of the other party involved that's that's how the per this person was to describing it yeah. um, talk about some good experiences that you had in uh in the church of scientology um most of them like i said were when i was younger um i did have uh, I did enjoy, you know, being with the kids and playing with the kids when we were there. And, you know, my parents would go to these events and they don't want to bring the kids. So we would get to go hang out with the whoever was babysitting at the time. And we would all, you know, we would all play. You were forced to sit at the little Scientology table. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The kids, the kids, Scientology, the Scientologists. So, um, yeah, we hung out. We played with toys did all kinds of stuff. That was fun, you know, for a while. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I can't, I can't remember a whole lot that was fun. Most of the stuff I did that was fun didn't involve Scientology. Was there any, any moments that you felt that Scientology or some exercise you did in it helped you personally? Um, I mean, I think that, I think that the, the TRs, I think learning to be non-responsive to people and it the touch response is it what it is or? um training routines training routines yeah and so i think that learning to be non-responsive to another person and learning to be able to shut off your your reactions and to to let your buttons be pushed without jumping on someone i think those have been helpful to me um i think that's a skill that people should have you know especially people of anger issues and stuff like that to not take things personally exactly yeah. and i think that that's helped me because to me, it's, you know, I've learned that if the person, if I don't know that person or I don't, I don't have any connection to that person, then I don't care what they have to say. And why am I going to let it bother me? So, and I think that, that, that particular thing helped me. Um, I think that, um, even the confessionals, even though they were very intense, you do feel kind of good getting them off your chest. It's just that the punishment afterwards is, you know, in the Catholic Church, you don't get punishment. You just do penance and you mm -hmm. say your prayers and it's a private thing. I think that the fact that they're... I would say that church is punishment, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that, But the the sins that you confess, you know, the overts and withholds, they become public. I mean, P Scientologists love gossip. And so it, that part of that humiliation and stuff is bad. But I think that the confession part of it is good. It's nice to get stuff off your chest. Yeah, just not so good when it's used against you. Exactly, yeah. Or feel like it's being held over your head. Exactly. Uh, have you ever met David Miscavige? No, I've never met him in person. I've been very close to him in proximity, but um, he doesn't usually interact with the low people, and I was one of them, so I never got to talk to him. Who was the highest-ranking member that you interacted with? Um, his name's Guillaume Lesserve. He's a French, I think he's French, and he is the executive director international, he's called. He's, I don't know exactly how that position works, but mm. he's just very high up there. And he came down to, when I worked at the advanced organization in LA, they deliver the OT levels. Mm -hmm. um, I 
was in the basement, you know, scanning central files. I was doing a whole thing. They have a, a fi- several different filing systems. This one called Central Files is where they keep correspondence with the organization, like letters back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing in, nothing, you know, uh, private or anything like that. So I scan these things into a computer. They've been trying to, you know, make all of their files electronic for some time. Yeah. But so I was scanning all those and it came down to check out the process and I kind of walked him through it. And that was an interesting interaction for me. I mean, I was very nervous. Because, you know, he's very high up sure. and he's with the senior people in my organization is and they he, all have their eyes on me. Does he drive a pretty fancy spaceship? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very wire, fancy. Wire rims. <laughs> very fancy. It's probably a Toyota Corolla. Um, did you ever see uh, people benefiting financially from all the money that gets taken in? What? Where, I, the documentary made it sound like they just invest it all in property and stuff like they're like huge property holders yeah gigantic um and i can't even remember it's in the billions how much property they own because they've never paid taxes because they keep their status as um as a religious organization yeah and apparently according to this documentary they made it sound like they dug up some dirt on some IRS people, so the IRS dropped their case about f- trying to get them to lose their uh, religion status. I don't know about that, but I do know that they had a lot of Scientologists sue the IRS and personal IRS, you know, IRS mm-hmm. agents personally. Um, that's the official, you know, the public story. Mm-hmm. There may be, you know, a situation where they did dig up some dirt and I'm not familiar with all that. I heard that in the documentary too. I would not be surprised because that's how they do things. But, um, I never saw anybody benefiting personally. Um, however, like inurement is what you're talking about. Um, I know that all the money that we made locally got sent up to David Miscavige. I mean, all of it ends up there. There's a whole trail it follows through corporations and, um, but I know that's where the money eventually ends up. I know that, um, I don't know if you know how, how it works, but Sea Org members are paid in a stipend. Um, and I, and I, you know, when I, whenever I talk to somebody about the Sea Org, I say we didn't get paid because essentially that stipend is $20 a week that you're supposed to spend on, um, underwear, socks, uh, shoes, uh, laundry detergent, uh, soap, you know, body wash, shampoo, toothbrush, toothpaste, toilet paper. You're supposed to buy all these things, deodorant. You're supposed to buy all these things with that little bit of money. So, and the church doesn't provide any of it. The only thing that the church provides their workers is food, three meals a day. They provide you with a shirt, a tie, and pants. And you get, I think, three of each. And that's all you get. And they provide dry cleaning service, too, for that. Um, other than that, everything else you have to pay for out of your own pocket. And so you essentially don't get paid. So on David Miscavige's birthday, this is where I was going with that. So you get this little stipend on David Miscavige's birthday. There's a person that stands outside when you're picking up your paycheck because they pay you in cash and you're supposed to give them money to, you know, and they give, have a suggested amount you're supposed to give. So we're essentially buying David Miscavige a birthday gift. The Sea Org members who don't make any money. Wow. Yeah. And he, I mean, he got stuff like, I'm talking motorcycles and cars. And I mean, that's how much money they were able to collect from all the Sea Org members. When did you start working for Sea Org and how long did you work? Um, I started in September of 2000, or excuse me, August of 2001. And I left in July of 2004. So almost exactly three years. Um, I left a couple days after my 18th birthday. I was 15 when I started. Um, And... I started at the advanced organization in Los Angeles, and then I spent the last 
maybe six or eight months at in Flag and Clearwater. What else would you like to share about your anything else you'd like to share about your experience? Um, well, when I think probably won't, uh, besides when I came back from Flag and you know I had had that um, horrible thing with my dad. Um, I there there was there's a recruitment process that everybody goes through for the Sea Org. So when you're raised in Scientology, you look at the Sea Org like Scientology's Power Rangers. I mean, they protect the OT levels and the highest stuff, you know, the highest um, information, and they keep everything secret, and they basically run the organization. Um, and we all know we all know this, and we're taught this, and you see these big posters with them holding swords and stuff, and the the galaxies in the background. I mean, it's all really cool, and so. You know, you want to be a part of that. I mean, you think they're part of saving the world. And so there's a recruitment process that they go through. They look for young people because they always need young blood because it's so the work is grueling. I mean, the hours are insane. And so they need new people all the time because people get, you know, tired or sick or whatever. So um, they came after me probably when I was 14 is when it started, 13 going on 14. And for a year they spent working on me. Um, Were you hesitant? To yes, join. to join, yeah. Because you knew it was so intense yeah. physically. And well, and because, I mean, I'm 13 years old. I just started junior high. You know, I left the high school in ninth grade. I didn't even finish high school. I, I managed to get my um, proficiency exam while I was in the Sea Org, which is how I've made it today. And my work experience now is what keeps me going. But um, I never made it through high school because these people pulled me out of high school, and that's what I didn't want to do. And my dad didn't want me to do that either. But these people have a whole process they go where they break you down emotionally and psychologically and everything. And so I, they used to follow me. They first it started with the phone calls. Um, this is oh, this is where I was going before. So I was at an event, one of these Scientology events. They give you a paper at the end that you fill out. It's a little survey to say how was the event, blah blah blah. At the end, there's a little question, are you interested in learning more about the Sea Org? And I checked yes on one of them. <laughs> Biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> and so um, I ended up uh, having these people call me. And it started off as a lighthearted thing. You know, they would show up sometimes to talk to me. But they start showing up everywhere. And you're at random places. And how the hell did you know I was here? I mean, these people just come out of the bushes and there they are trying to recruit you for the Sea Org. And, and it was pretty, I mean, it got pretty bad at one point. Um, they were calling me at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. My dad was pissed. I mean, he blamed me because I answered yes on the thing. And it's all, you know, the 13 year old boy's fault that these adults are chasing him around. And it's like, you know, what, what never, I never understood why dad, why aren't you angry at them? You know, these are the predators coming after me. And here you are blaming me for the predators coming after me. So at one point, um, I had seen them after school and this was towards the very end when they, you know, were breaking me down. Um, I see, saw them after school and I, I, they would show up at my school to try and get me to go with them, which is classic. I mean, that's textbook, like child predator shit. Like this fucking people are showing up in a car, these strangers trying to take me away. Separate you from the pack. Yeah. It's horrible. So I, um, I started walking home. But I went a different way because I figured, okay, they wouldn't find me. But, you know, I'm walking up this hill and all of a sudden I hear a car behind me slowing down. And I was like, son of a bitch, they found me, you know. And so I didn't look back. I just kept walking. And then they were, you know, talking, you know, trying to talk to me through the window and stuff, telling me to stop, talk to them. And, you know, come with us. We'll take you to pack base and let's talk about you joining the Sea Org, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's the greatest thing you've ever done and save the universe. And they're 
and I said, no, I don't want to go. I'm not interested. Don't want to get in the car. And they said, okay, we'll give you a ride home. So I got in the car and they basically fucking kidnapped me and took me to pack base. And this is at four o'clock in the afternoon and I'm gone. I mean, they, I, I got in the car. They told me they were going to be right home and they gave me a ride to pack base. And, you know, stupid of me to get in the car, but you don't think somebody's going to kidnap you, especially when I'm a kid, you know, I'm 14. Wow. I don't know. So I'm there. They put me in a little room, like, you know, like the room we're in now. I mean, and there's one table and they, it's classic police interrogation. You know, now I know they put me on one, the opposite, the door and stood between me and the door. So I didn't feel like I had a safe exit. And there was no phone, nothing. There, the room was bare. I mean, there was nothing on the walls. Um, the blinds were pulled, closed, and they started, you know, haranguing me about joining the Sea Org, joining the Sea Org, save the planet, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a whole spiel that they do about how important it is and how it's the most important thing you'll ever do in your life and um, give up everything and come join us, you know? And um, so I didn't want to. I mean, I'm not ready to leave my friends behind and... And my whole life behind and go do be basic, basically dedicated because you sign a billion year contract and they set the billion year contract in front of you and slide it over to you. And there it is. I mean, I'm going to be in the sea for a billion years. And Could you try to negotiate and get it down to a million? <laughs> I thought about it, but no, it's already written, so they can't change it. No, um, they. so I didn't want to sign it. They're trying to get – the whole point is to get you to sign this thing. And so they would come in. Uh, they would send people in, one after the other, different people, higher and higher level people. And the captain of the organization comes in. And at one point, there's probably 10 people in this tiny room all basically yelling at me or taking turns yelling and, and begging and pleading and – they didn't give me anything to eat, nothing to drink. Um, and I was there from four o'clock in the afternoon until midnight, or maybe it was one in the morning. And my parents didn't know where I was. I told them to call my parents and tell them. They, Of course, they told me they would, and they didn't. And so I finally got out of this room because I signed the contract because I was crying. I mean, I'm, I'm crying, sitting in the corner. I'm losing my fucking mind i mean the it's insane i i just i can't even tell you how badly it fucks you up to have all these people in here screaming at you telling you and you're a little kid you know where are my parents you know why aren't they here helping me i'm all alone that is There's so nobody here to save me incredibly abusive that yeah. is i mean was, those people should go to jail i agree it's horrible i mean it's it's just it was horrible i mean the experience is so awful it's probably one of the worst experiences i had how can you explain why why these people aren't in jail? Is it that nobody wants to deal with the litigiousness of uh, Scientology by bringing charges against them? Well, I mean, you got to imagine my parents are dedicated Scientologists. They're not going to bring any charges against these people. In fact, when I got out of the room, I, I called them. Uh, I called my dad because they told me, oh, we never called your dad, by the way. And so I call, I was like, well, fuck, my dad doesn't know where I am. He doesn't know where I am for eight hours now. So I called him and, you know, he's pissed. I mean, at me, though. That's what I didn't understand. He came to pick me up and he's yelling at me. And I was even pleading with him like, you know, you might got to imagine I'm 14. I mean, you're looking at me now and twice as old. But I was a 14-year-old kid sitting there in the car with my dad like, Dad, they took me. Like, why aren't you mad at them? Why don't you say something, do something, like help me? You know, I was begging him for help. And he wouldn't help me. I mean, he would tell me it's my fault. And then I need to be able to say no. And... You know, that's all he would ever tell me. You no. have to do this on your own. I'm not going to help you. 
And I don't know why, because I don't know what was going on on his side of things. But I know that he said that I don't even care. He told them at one point, I don't care if he signs the contract. I'm not releasing him to you. But then eventually they got my parents to sign away their parental rights and gave it to some random person in this organization who I never saw the whole fucking time I was there. I mean, this person's supposed to be my guardian. I never saw him. He was busy working. And so, I mean, I don't, it's all obviously not legal on paper. It's legal is the hard part. You know, the way they do it, it's very coercive, but how are you going to prove that in court? But also I can't sue on my own. I don't know any better. I look to my parents to do something for me. My parents aren't going to sue them because these are the people they're faithful to. Right. So and you probably don't remember the names of any of the people that. Oh, I remember a lot of the names. The people that brought you into that room and I do. Took, I, yeah, took you in the car. Hell yeah, I remember their names. But I, I can't imagine that. I mean, at this point, first of all, the statute of limitations has expired on child abuse and neglect. I mean, it's been over eight years, and that's pretty much the amount of time you have. From when you turn 18, you have eight years. So I already know that. I could probably, if I had a lawyer, go back and sue them, but I can't afford one. So, and I mean, I'm, there's a lady who's been suing them, Laura DeCrescenzo. She's been suing them for, I think, going on four years now for a similar situation, you know, and I think she was forced to have an abortion when she was in the Sea Org, and she's been going at it for a long time. And so I don't have that kind of money or resources, so I can't really do anything about it, unfortunately. All I can do is talk about it, and that's what I do. I'm just dumbfounded. I'm just yeah. absolutely dumbfounded. So let's talk let's talk about emotionally after you get out what or, or was there anything you wanted to share about your time during the Sea Org? It, and it's the letter C org or it's S E A S E A. Okay. It's named after um when Hubbard when Hubbard was being sued by the IRS and and also tax organizations in the UK and stuff. Oh, he went. Uh, he went out out on the ocean and with international dateline. Yeah, yeah. He said international waters, and you know he didn't want to he didn't want to get sued or get any process servers. Sure. So that's what he did. So they that's where most altruists go. They yeah. look for the international uh, international yeah. waters. That's what they tell they tell you that the psychiatrists were trying to get him, so he had to go on the boats to get away from all the evil people but you know now i know the truth it's interesting finding out the truth and comparing it to what i was told you know the stories i was told but um so go ahead sure um so that's so um during my time in the sea organization i mean it was a lot of the same as that recruitment event i mean a lot of getting screamed at you spend day in and day out um you know, you don't know if you're going to be on somebody's good side or bad side. You don't know when you're going to have to do one of those OW write-ups. And, you know, they go after you for everything from masturbating to, um, you know, stealing money or whatever, anything that you – they and it gets worse than the OW write-ups because at some point they sit you down across from someone on an e-meter and they're trying to get you to confess your sins, but they're using the little needle on the meter to say, oh, I see, you know, you're holding something back. And so they have, that's where I was telling, telling you about the video and audio taped confessionals. That's where those come into play. And they do those to you in the Sea Org. They're called security checks. And it's so Orwellian. It's crazy, but, um, it's their thought policing. And so, you know, I spent my, those three years terrified. I mean, I was absolutely mortified because if I lose, if I do something wrong and it's really bad, 
and you're not even worried about doing something wrong if you get accused of doing something wrong. It's like a witch hunt. I mean, they can make up things and, and hold them against you and convince you that you did them because you're just so they, – they just harangue you and they get into your head and it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's absolutely crazy being surrounded by people that all think the same way. You can't deviate because there, – There is a sick power to somebody that is willing to wear you down to get their way. There is – it is um – my mom was was that way, and that's one of the ways that she would <clears throat> win an argument or get her way is she would be willing to, A, either go to the tears or just keep badgering you until you, you give up. And then after a certain point, they just wind up getting their way, their way because you know that to contradict them is going to be a half-hour ordeal of, you know— arguing and yeah. it sounds like it and i'm not, certainly not comparing my mom to scientology but uh you know there's a, a narcissistic quality to to both of them um and and that energizer bunny rabbit kind of way of just not giving up that's exactly what it is it, it's crazy i mean they corner you and you can't run away there's nowhere for you to go there's no safety net. There's nothing. You know, now if I get into a conversation like that, I can get up and leave. I have that freedom. But I didn't have that option here. And so I'm stuck with these. And for three years, I'm stuck with these. I mean, getting screamed at. Some days they'll be like, oh, you did such a great job. And some days they're, you're a piece of shit. What the fuck is wrong with you? Um, you know, you're, you're, you're an SP, which is like their version of... There's like an evil person, suppressive person, it's called. Yeah, they covered that in the documentary. Yeah, yeah, it's anyone who turns against Scientology is essentially it. But they threaten you with, you know, being declared an SP, which means you're cut off from Scientology, which to me as a kid is like, that means my parents are going to give me up. And where am I going to go? And I'm going to be on my own. I mean, I literally was convinced and I was probably right that if this happened to me as a kid, my parents are going to leave me on the street. I mean, I, I will have nowhere. I mean, and it's terrifying. I mean, it's not, I don't want to say it's, you know, you're afraid of death, but it's pretty damn close. I mean, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with myself. So I'm terrified into just doing my job and doing it right and keeping my head down. And I didn't, I knew I was getting into something intense, but I didn't know it was going to be bad intense. I thought it was going to be a good intense thing. And, um, so for three years, I'm like this. And then, you know, I find this, this guy in Florida and he, you know, we really liked each other and he made me feel really good about myself and, you know, vice versa. And that's how we kind of built a relationship. And I really enjoyed that time period. I mean, it went mm -hmm. on for a couple months and it was great. I mean, it was the first experience I ever had like that. It was very secretive, you know, obviously we didn't want anybody to know about it, but it was wonderful. I mean, it was a, that was a good experience amidst chaos, you know, and it was probably the only light, you know, at the end of the tunnel for me, knowing that I could have I could have someone feel that way about me and that I could feel that way about someone. And even though it didn't last and he was sent back to the UK and that was very devastating for me, of course, I mean, I was in love with them as in love as a teenager can be. And, you know, he was torn away from me one day. Your experience could be a movie. I mean, it's a <laughs> fucking movie. Yeah. I mean, if I could write a script, I would. I don't know how to write a script like that. But, yeah, so this this whole experience was just, I mean, it's horrific. I mean, I can't, that's, I was diagnosed with PTSD, you know, shortly after I left Scientology altogether. Um, 
you know, like you said about studying science, I mean, I had read about psychology and psychiatry and I knew that it was science based and that there was something, you know, it was good. I mean, it's not like in Scientology, they make you think that, oh, these people have no idea what they're doing. But, you know, I'm reading about antidepressants and they they know the neurotransmitters in your brain that they affect. And it's very specific. So it's not really like this loose, you know, right. it's I don't know. No. So anyway, after I left, uh, you know, where am I going to turn? You know, what am I going to do? Um I fell back on some friends, you know, I made friends that weren't Scientologists, a lot of them. And that was probably my first when I was sort of tearing away after this was years after I left the Sea Org. But, um, you know, that, that was pretty much my experience in the Sea Org. I was diagnosed with PTSD by that, my, the first therapist I saw, um, because of all the trauma that added up to one big traumatic experience. And I couldn't, you know, that's a a heavy diagnosis. I mean, that's a big thing. And, you know, she prescribed me some medication and I mean, it was wonderful, but that whole experience caused, uh, that's what I attribute my PTSD to. And did your, had you cut off contact with your parents at this point? By the time I saw a psychiatrist, I had, yes. Yeah. And did that feel cleansing or was it terrible or both? I like to compare it to cutting off an infected limb. Um, I mean, it was... So I went online. So during the eight years um, before I finally left when I was 26, and this is in the year 2012, um, during those eight years, uh, I started with working for Scientologists that own companies outside of the Sea Org and all that. I wasn't working for Scientology, but I was working for Scientologists. And so I I bounced through a couple of jobs and picked up some years of work history and then from there, I presented myself to a headhunting agency, and they got me a temporary job for somebody who's not a Scientologist. And then, you know, from there, I got a permanent job and stuff. For six years, I was at one company, and I made connections outside of Scientology. So I was freeing myself at that point from Scientology. I knew that at that point, um, when I, you know, sat on that bed and I was thinking about killing myself, I knew that eventually I'm going to have to cut off Scientology. So I prepared myself for that. I built up the work experience I needed, then exited Scientology. And so I started making friends outside of Scientology and my parents saw that I was drifting from, you know, the faith. And so they tried to pull me back in and it was very hard. You know, they were pulling very hard trying to get me to come back in to the circle. But I knew that, you know, I had met these people and I eventually told them I'm gay and they were okay with it. And I saw how the world outside viewed, you know, gay people and how it was normal. And, you know, there is not something you can change gay, you know, reparative therapy doesn't work in all of this. So, you know, I, and I never really thought there was something wrong with me to begin with, you know, when I knew I was gay, I just, I just knew that's the way I was and I can't change it. And I mean, I just knew I couldn't change it. And so, um, I, so I drifted big time and then there's, when you leave the Sea Org, you're given what's called a freeloader's debt, which is basically saying you broke your contract. Therefore, all the Scientology services you received while you were with us, you have to pay for now. (laughs) Why not? Yeah. Why not? (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God! It's so over the top. Yeah. It's unfucking believable. I know. I, know. It, I mean, it's it's hard to talk about it. I mean, because it, it's so unreal. And anyway, so I had this freeloader debt. I needed, you know, in order to do services, I had to pay it. My parents wanted me to do services. 
I couldn't start them. So they said, you know, they're trying to encourage me to pay this debt. And I, and I finally, at one point, and this is when I was starting to really break out of my shell. I told my dad, I was a fucking child. I don't owe them shit. I was a child when they recruited me. I didn't know. Like, how can you think that they could hold this? But, you know, he's in agreement with this. So at one point, and this is going to sound even more crazy, we're moving houses. Um, We're, you know, we had to move out of the house we were in to a new house. And my dad said, Derek, I need $4,000 to put down for this new house. And I had $4,000. So I said, okay, here's $4,000 to put down on the new house. And then I find out probably two weeks later that he took that money and paid my freeloader's debt with it. And I was fucking livid. I mean, my dad just stole $4,000 from me. That's, and I can't get it back. I mean, you can't ask for a refund from without getting declared an SP. And he knew this. And I knew this. And so he knew I wouldn't go ask for my money back. And he never, you know, I was, are you going to pay me back? No. So he just stole this fucking money from me. So that was towards the end, you know, and there was a period. Oh, so in 2010, my aunt passed away and my aunt Brenda and I were very close. She was like a second mother to me. I absolutely loved her. And, you know, probably one of the greatest things I remember is, you know, her cooking breakfast in the morning. I mean, for us, I loved her dearly. She had strayed from the church. My dad and her had a falling out. My dad told a lot of, you know, told me and my sister a lot of bad stuff about her to sort of like program us not to talk to her. I I decided I'm getting ready to leave. Um, This is just two years Mm -hmm. before I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to leave. I need to call her. I need to try to go live with her. And then I found out she passed away. And it, it was devastating, not only because I hadn't talked to her you know, in several months because of what happened between her and my dad. Um, but also because, you know, I love, I loved her. She's the first person very close to me that I lost and I was going to lean on her for help. And now my only exit was gone. And so it was a lot of shit that just fell heavy on me. And, um, my dad, you know, destroyed her memory after she died. The way he handled her death was awful. I mean, all he wanted was to find out how much money she had so he could take it all. Um, Because he said, oh, I'm the closest person here. I get all of her bank account and blah, blah, blah. Trying to find out whatever she had stashed away. And um, it was just awful. I mean, there was a whole thing between her husband and my dad because they were filing for divorce. But my aunt didn't sign the papers before she passed away. So technically, her husband Mm -hmm. was the next of kin for everything. And my dad just blew up because thinking oh brian's gonna get all this fucking um excuse me my uncle's gonna get all this fucking money and um uh and it's not even i said the wrong name but it's fine so he's gonna get all this money and you know just pissed that he wouldn't get the money didn't care about his sister being dead and so that was another one that sort of was like the nail another nail in the coffin for me where i was like this is how my parents are gonna be when i say i don't want to be a scientologist anymore so you know, fuck them. At that point, I was getting very rebellious. You know, it's sort of like my teenage rebellion was pushed into my 20s. So was it a conversation that you had with your parents where you said, I'm leaving? Um, in 2012, February of 2012, I went online to the ex-Scientologist message board and posted my story. I had been reading there prior and I had posted under a pseudonym. Um, but eventually I got, you know, I was reading all these other people and I was like, all these people are so fucking brave sharing their stories. 
why am I not sharing mine? And are they shared anonymously on there or sometimes? You, yeah, yeah, sometimes they are, but I in, in mine. So they would tell me that the church monitored the website. I didn't really believe it. I kind of, you know, was like, I was still kind of on the fence and I was like, there's no way they have the resources and they're spending all this time reading the internet. So I post them, you know, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to go post my story. We'll see what happens. I posted my whole story. I mean, it was long from beginning to end and basically laid out everything. Uh, you know, the being gay and, and all of it. And so they, of course, the church tracked it down two months later in April. And my dad shows up at my friend's house. And my dad didn't know the address to any of my friends except this one because my car had been stolen earlier. Another whole thing that happened mm -hmm. with that. Scientologists are very weird where they connect. Um, they think that bad, bad, it's sort of like a karma situation where bad things happen to you because you did bad things. Mm -hmm. So my dad's sitting down, like my dad sits me down about, you know, my car being stolen and he's blaming me, first of all, for my car being stolen. I called him from my friend's house. My car is gone. I don't know what happened. And he's screaming at me on the phone. Like I did something wrong. Right. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like my car was stolen from me. I didn't. I didn't do yeah. anything wrong. I yeah. didn't. It, typical. It, yeah. Typical thing that he's been doing all along. Yeah. And so I, I just didn't understand. I mean, at this point, it was very because my friends, I was with my friends and they were very supportive. You need to ride anywhere. You need rides to work. You need to borrow my car. I'll let you use my car for a few days. Very, very supportive. And here's my dad on the phone telling me, you know, he's going to send me to jail, you know, for having my car stolen. And I told him, I don't. You know, he told me, come home. And I was like, I don't want to go home. And he said, and, and he paused. And this is probably when I really, like, I, I don't know where I found the strength. I guess my friends, you know, had given me the strength that I needed. I told him, Dad, listen to yourself and how you're talking to me. This is the first time I ever said anything to my dad like this. I said, Dad, listen to yourself and how you're talking to me right now. And think about why I don't want to come home. And he paused like something like, oh, my God, my obedient son is now talking back to me. And then he just started screaming and I, I hung up on him. The first time Good in my life what I ever like? did that. Oh, my God, it felt great. It felt amazing. And then he kept calling my phone and I just kept sending it to voicemail for probably a good hour. And then finally he called me again and I said, are you calm now? And he started screaming again. I hung up on him again. Good for you. I, I just couldn't. I mean, holy shit. Wow. Like, my dad was losing it because, how, you know, how can your son be doing this to you? And so this happened in um, February of 2012 is actually when it happened. And this was the final straw for me because I finally got a ride from a friend home. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I no, I finally called him to give me a ride home when he did calm down. I waited several hours. Yeah. And when he called me and he was calm on the phone. I said, okay, you can come get me now. Here's the address. That's how he got this friend's address. And so he picked me up, took me home, and then he started grilling me in the Scientologist way. What did I do wrong that this happened to me? And then he starts asking about my sex life. Are you having sex with men? Are you, you know, being promiscuous? And I, it felt disgusting. I mean, my parents were prior to this very emotionally incestuous, I think is the term for it. They shared too much about their sex life and asked too much about ours, being me and my sister and even my little brother. And so 
I was very uncomfortable with this conversation and I got up and went to my room. You know, I told them I'm, mm. I'm done with this conversation. I'm going to my room. I can't believe you're asking me this is gross. You know, it felt mm. gross. I felt dirty. And so I went to my room and I cried all night. I was so torn up. I, I, I just, all the strength that I had that I used, I mean, I just was able to just let my guard down because I had my door locked and I just cried all night about thinking about how the fuck can my parents not support me? I mean, I, I was falling apart. And so that's when I went online the next day and I wrote my whole story because I was like, you know what? At this point, I don't even care anymore. And I, I from beginning to end, and of course, the church tracked it down a couple months later. And I happened to be helping my friends move out of their house, the same friends. So he showed up, you know, showed me the story. And that that's how I, and then I went to go live with some friends that I had already told them my whole story and they helped me out. And so from there, I went to therapy and I've been going to therapy for a couple of years. And um, I actually just started again with a new therapist since I got back. I moved to Austin to reconnect with my family. Um, I've had a lot of good things happen since then. I actually have a boyfriend now. I've been dating you, him. You for moved a to while. Austin connect, to connect with your extended family. Extended family. Yes. The non-Scientologist. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I moved and I stayed there for a whole for a year and three months. And I got to know them really well. And we're all very close now. I actually went to visit them not too long ago. And, um, you know, I'm very close to my friends and uh, no connection to Scientology at all with anyone. And, and it's absolutely amazing. And since then, I've gone to protests and I've hung out with ex-Scientologists and, you know, been online doing blogging and my YouTube channel and all that with the story. I mean, it's absolutely my life is so much better. I mean, my job is better. And do you get harassed by them? Um, I haven't, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably because I'm low on the totem pole. I'm not a senior executive or anything. Um, I just try to share the human part of my story. Because I don't want kids to go through what I went through. I don't. People still get sucked in my Scientology today, even with the internet, and it's horrible for children. I mean, mm-hmm. the ch- children are are probably the worst off in Scientology. I mean, they get dragged into it. They don't know any better, and they become the most zealous too. Yeah. Because that's all they know. Yeah. And it's you know you can go to the pack base and you can see you know all the kids there that work. I mean, they do manually. I mean, they're scrubbing the streets and picking weeds and i mean it's horrible and i i just don't want kids and i want somebody to you know do something about the child abuse it's slave labor child slave labor is what they're using and they get away with it if somebody wants to get a hold of you um is are you comfortable giving a public way for people to contact you yeah um i have an email a gmail account that i use for stuff like that it's d man m-a-n underground all one word Demon underground at gmail at gmail.com okay. yeah derek thank you so much for coming in uh, and sharing your story absolutely many many thanks to uh to derek boy what a fascinating story at uh i'm just constantly amazed at the at the things i hear on the on the podcast um before I take it out uh, with some surveys from you guys, uh, I want to tell you about another survey that I would love for you to take. It is for our advertisers or potential advertisers to get to know who you are uh, because they support the show and they help keep it uh, free uh, in addition to the monthly donors. God bless you. Um, but it's a, um, it's a survey where your answers help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you and your interests and the show and it increases the chances of us having uh, advertisers, which means uh, it helps keep the show going. So if you would go to podsurvey.com slash mentalpod, 
Uh, it'll take less than five minutes. It's completely anonymous when you're done. Uh, if you'd like, you can enter your email for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And we give away one gift card every month. And if you, even if you've taken a podcast listener survey before, we hope you take ours. And uh, it, it does help to uh, support the show. So once again, go to podsurvey.com slash mentalpod. And uh, that would um, mean a lot to me. So do it, please. Um, also want to mention if you feel so inclined there's a couple of ways to uh, support the podcast financially you can go to the website mentalpod.com and uh, make a one-time paypal donation or my favorite a recurring monthly donation and uh, you can do it for as little as five bucks a month it's super easy to fill out and uh, you can also help us by shopping at amazon through our search portal it's on our homepage, about right uh halfway down right hand side not to be confused with the search box for our website itself which is a great tool uh, when you're searching for a particular topic. And you can also support us um, non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about us, giving us a good rating. That means a lot to us, and it helps boost our profile. And you can support us non-financially by spreading the word through social media. That's a really huge one. So much uh, appreciation to those of you that uh, have done that already. Let's get to the surveys. This, hold on, sip of tea. Don't push me. Do not rush me. This is from the body shame survey filled out by a woman who calls herself delusionally sane. She is straight and she's in her 50s. And what do you like or dislike about your body? She writes, my breasts in any curves. I wish I was shaped like a boy. It took a lot of therapy sessions to learn why. My mother was an obese and sexually abusive woman. On top of that, she was an exhibitionist. She walked around the house with her large melon-shaped breasts bouncing on her large belly. When I looked down at my naked chest... uh, Sometimes I wish I had an excuse to get a breast reduction. My husband tells me that they are sexy. They aren't that big and I shouldn't be ashamed. He tells me biggish breasts don't mean I am fat. It just means I am a woman. I've tried not to eat so they would be smaller. And When I was underweight, I could tolerate myself, but I got seizures from not eating and at a healthy weight, they are C cups. And anytime I get a glimpse of them, all I see are my mother's. As a child, we were locked in our house and never went to school or anything because she is a criminal and didn't want to get caught. And so being stuck at home with her naked and touched by her when I was a toddler has given me chronic PTSD. And every time I look at my chest, I am reminded that she has a part of me that I can never get rid of. Thank you for sharing that. It's amazing what, uh, <clears throat> what triggers us and how profoundly... Um, it can affect us. I get emails from people who ask me sometimes, you know, can you give a trigger warning because this thing that you read triggered me? And uh, I have to say every once in a while, there are so many people are triggered by so many different things on the podcast that the podcast would every other, every other minute, you know, would, would contain a trigger warning. So I, I do apologize to, uh, and I am aware of that, but that's just a decision I, I had to make as a um, as the producer of the show. Uh, that's we're gonna we're gonna go in a different direction. That's my horrible 
Hollywood producer impression. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences. Uh, by the way, I am sweating my ass off right now. I don't think it's really that hot out, but uh, for some reason I am just... Uh, anyway. Why were you hospitalized? Psychosis. Oh, this is filled up by Kat. She is uh, in her 30s. She writes, I was very ill and I... Uh, this is describing her experience. We're off to a horrible start. Uh, I was very ill, and I think it didn't matter where I was. It was nice to have someone cook my meals. I appreciated having a private room because I had paranoid delusions and did not trust people. When I got a roommate after a week, I thought she was trying to kill me. Overall, it was a positive experience. Looking back, uh, bad food, nothing to do but watch TV, nowhere to go, none of that mattered. I needed a safe, quiet place to get stabilized on some medication, and that's what I got. I am intent on avoiding a repeat experience, though. I don't want to go back. It's just too damn hard to recover from psychosis. I don't want to have my life hijacked like that again. I can't imagine how hard it has to be um, being in a psychotic episode. Oh. I've got to believe that that shooting in South, South Carolina, I've got to believe that that was some type of psychosis. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Jeffrey. He's straight. He's in his 30s. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, I went to hang out with a co-worker after work late at night and I had a headache. I asked him for some headache medicine, so he gave me a couple of pills and some orange juice. The next thing I remember, I was waking up a little in the middle of... I was waking up a little in the middle of him sexually assaulting me. I passed out again, but I would occasionally wake up and catch a glimpse of what was going on and then pass out again. The next morning I drove home and I never reported it because I felt so ashamed of myself for letting it happen. I told my brother, isn't that amazing how we will blame ourselves for letting it happen? How did you let that happen? You didn't let that happen. This was something that was, I'm not yelling at you by the way. Um, continuing, I told my brother and a friend, but I wasn't taken seriously. Uh, so I felt ignored and like no one trusted me or cared enough about me to show any sympathy. Again, one of my least, when people go to somebody else with something so hard to talk about and they so badly need compassion and they're met with either ignorance or indifference or mockery, um, I always say, I think it's a an even worse wound than the initial wound. Um, anyway, oh boy, I'm really in my head tonight. Uh, she, he writes, I, f- I felt like at least my brother should have believed me, shown sympathy for me, and gotten angry enough to want to get revenge of some kind. This happened in 1998 or 99, so it's been a long time, but I remember a lot of details, and I've tried my best to find the guy so I could either report him or get revenge. I wanted to kill him, but I haven't been able to find him. Uh, He's been emotionally abused. Uh, He writes, I'm currently being emotionally abused by my wife. It's not really serious, but it's enough to trigger some pretty bad anxiety. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Uh, Yes, I love my wife, and I get really well with her family. I think he means get get 
along really well with her family, but I feel like it might be worth the risk to be alone again so I can get away from her, the constant feelings of agitation and fear. Um, I would imagine that is probably part of some PTSD, the agitation and the fear. Not that you know there aren't issues with your wife, but um, anyway, continuing. Uh, darkest thoughts. I want to die. I don't want to kill myself. I just want to die. I fantasize about dying in my sleep or in a large blast, like a nuclear blast. Oh, you're going nuclear on us. Uh, I've had dreams about being killed by a direct nuclear blast, and it felt so good in my dream that now I think about it a lot. In the past, mostly in my teens, I wanted to do some really horrendous things, like the kind of mass killings that you hear about on TV for years, but I would never actually do anything like that. I vent my frustration by playing music or just spacing out and going to a happy place. That's weird. I picked this survey to read before the uh, the uh, thing happened in South Carolina. Um Darkest secrets. My brother beat me up constantly when we were kids because he was a lot stronger and faster. Once he hit me in the face so hard that he broke two bones in his hand. I lost my virginity to a girl that some of my friends had picked up. She was really trashy and kind of hideous. We took turns with her and I ended up dating her for a while afterwards. We moved in together and she was also emotionally abusive, so I knew that I needed to leave her, but I would have felt really guilty about it. And uh, that's that's as far as he got in his survey. Hold on. Sip of tea. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Pikey Dan. And uh, it's a very brief one. He writes, uh, I was at a band practice one night. All of a sudden, halfway through a song, I felt the weight of the world drop, and I was truly out of this realm and, and swimming in the music. It was almost magical. I like that. I like... I like when uh, music just, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the word would be for it, that transforms us, but uh, is transcendent? Would that be right? Oh my God, sometimes I feel so dumb. (laughs) This is, uh, and by the way, still sweating, still sweating up a storm. Maybe it's the caffeine. I'm going to get some detectives on it. (laughs) I'm going to phone the perspiration department at my local (laughs) precinct. Can you send a couple of officers and a sponge? Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself forever fucked. She is uh, pansexual in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, I was drunk being walked home from the bar and the guy walking me home had me blow him right in public. I lost my virginity when I was 13 to a man a decade older than me. There are many more instances, but those are the two that stick with me the most. She is not sure if she's been emotionally abused. Oh, yeah. This is, oh my God, this, not sure if this is emotional abuse. My ex would throw knives at me, but I never got hit. So I'm not sure that would count as physical. Yes, that counts as physical. My ex would force me to have sex with him without condoms, call me dirty and a whore. He changed my name and cut my hair. He would even make me change when I got to his house because he didn't like my clothing. Yes, that's emotional and physical abuse. And it sounds like sexual abuse. 
Um, any positive experiences with him? If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have had my child. He made me feel sexually appealing and wanted. Darkest thoughts. I have trouble feeling connected. So much so, I sometimes find it hard to feel love for my child. When I get anxious, my thoughts race and my skin burns. I get agitated and angry. Sensory overload. When my child is around and I feel like this, I picture hitting my child. I think about my child dying. How would it happen and how would I react? I imagine I would immediately kill myself. I feel like what kind of a parent thinks about that? I blame my mother for so much. I see her as the abuser in my life. She had denied me the freedom to be myself. She had raised me in a hoarder home. She had made me feel stupid and worthless. She has told me to not eat. She took my medications away and says I'm lying about being depressed. She says I made it up to excuse drug use. I feel guilty thinking she has abused me because she has supported me and my child financially and she has always been there to clean up my mess. When I speak to others about my life and they call it abuse, I defend her because I feel like a shitty person for accusing her of that. You know, one of the things that I really wrestled with and healing from from the stuff that I experienced uh, with with my mom was understanding that people can be both light and dark and that's it's a hard it's a hard thing to wrap your head around but anyway uh darkest secrets i blew my dog i don't remember how old i was but i was younger than 10 sexual fantasy is most powerful to you being demeaned and dominated i don't like sharing that with people who know about men abusing me during sex i feel guilty like i should say what they did was abuse since it's the stuff I am into. And, uh, you know, fantasy and reality, two completely different things. And, yeah, different, one has nothing to do with the other. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, I'm on an island of quicksand in the middle of the ocean filled with monsters. I am sinking and there is nowhere to go. Why don't you see my pain? Why do you punish me when I tell you I am in pain? She'd like to say that to her mom. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I would get a terminal illness so that I would die and I wouldn't leave people as fucked up as they would be if I had killed myself. If you share these things with others, I share it with online communities. They're very supportive, but no matter what they say, I do not get better or enlightened. I wonder if you're talking to a mental health professional, because I bet that would help. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel so much shame. Oh, I feel such shame and pain. This is my life, and so much of it is my fault. Um... Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Let me be a hypocrite and say, don't blame yourself or call, call yourself a whore because you allow men to do awful things to you out of fear. That's not being a hypocrite. I don't think that's being a hypocrite at all. It's um, maybe sadly ironic that we can't take the advice that we would give to others, the advice or compassion we would give to others in our same situation. Um, but anyway, sending you some, some love and uh, hoping you go talk to somebody. These are, uh, this is from a, I'm going to be reading some of these throughout the podcast. These are from the Love Off I started on uh, Facebook. And Mary Beth McAndrews writes, I love observing simple yet very human moments while walking around my city. 
It's a great one. And Deb, uh, been there, writes, I love sliding between clean sheets after a bath. That's a good one. If I ever have clean sheets, I'll try that. <laughs> this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, have a nice life. I'm sorry. Uh, this is uh, filled out by a person who is agender. Um, and they have never been sexually abused. Uh, they are asexual, uh, 16, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, been emotionally abused. My identity, or at least how it is perceived by others, consists only on my grades and my results. I have grown with the idea that in order to have my existence recognized, I have to fulfill others' expectations, especially my mother's expectations, to always be the first, to always have perfect marks. This expanded from the school sphere to even my personality and my identification. I can't be depressed. I can't be anxious. I can't be agender. I can't be panromantic and one day possibly come into her house with a girlfriend because of her homophobia. There are quote, I have to expectations, as many as, quote, I can't. When I was little, I was told that I will literally sleep outside if I come home with a bad result. At that time, I believed it, but I was more scared of the fact that I will dis disappoint her than of sleeping outside. Now I'm 16 years old, even though I still don't know how I made it to this far, really, and I got into the best high school in my region. It's still not good enough. I will never be good enough. Realizing this, I have reached my limit. Every day I wake up hoping that a car will kill me. Every night I go to sleep hoping I will die in my sleep or something and I won't have to breathe in this hell anymore. But if I am on the edge of just throwing it all away into the depths of the nothingness known as death, why not kill this, quote, ideal person, this forced identity, and then trying to find out who I really am? Wow, that is that is so insightful. And um, yeah, the enemy is that voice in your head, not, not, not you and not your life. Um, and your mother sounds like a horrible person. <laughs> There's no two ways about that. Sick. Let me put it that way. She sounds like a sick person. A sick and horrible person. Uh, any positive experiences with your abuser? Sure. I've been disappointed by others and especially by myself, so I don't want anyone else to feel that way. But that means fulfilling their expectations and deceiving mine. Being disappointed by their selfishness, too. It's a never-ending circle. Darkest thoughts. I was shamed... Um, of not being the perfect person the others expected and my personal version of the, quote, ideal person that I wanted to be. Uh, now maybe I am shamed to the fact that deep in my heart I still have a few resentful feelings towards people that broke me and made me feel that way. Uh, this kills me. What are your darkest secrets? I have stepped on the grass because the sign said, please don't step on the grass. I did it for a vine. That is awesome. Thank you. And hang in there. You've only got two more years and then you don't have to you don't have to deal with this person's controlling conditional love. I wouldn't even call it love or sickness. These are some Facebook loves. Krista Millicitz writes, I love truly hearing the meaning behind a song I have heard dozens of times without interpreting or understanding it previously. Uh, 
Katie Cahill writes, I love it when I'm able to create a piece of art that looks exactly like the image I had in my mind while planning it. I do too. I've been, uh, I did that with a couple of pieces of furniture that I made and it was such a satisfying feeling when I, when I finished them. One of them was a table that I wanted to embed a Japanese lamp into and, um, and it was, you know, I had to learn how to, you know, put a light socket in there and how to wire a lamp and, uh, you know, how to use Japanese, uh, rice paper and, I learned all of these things and sketched it and made it look like it looked in my head. And the feeling I got when I turned it on and it glowed was just incredible. Incredible. Um, Let's see. Susan Severson her love is reading the first page of a book and knowing you're going to love it. Oh, that's a great one. That is a great one. Let's see. I've suddenly lost... Oh, now here we are. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Fairy Worm. And about her anxiety, she writes, I feel it physically as sweating, nausea, chills, fear to leave the house. About disassociating, she writes, it sometimes feels like my arms don't belong to me. A snapshot from her life. A few years ago, when I was at my worst, I went as far into depression as I could possibly go. I was too depressed to kill myself. I'd sit in my apartment all day and lack the will to eat or even get myself a glass of water. I started fainting in bed fainting in bed. That is bad. I didn't want to leave the house unless I had a specific errand because people would watch and judge me. I just sat at my table, stared at my computer, and waited to die because I was too much of a pussy to end my life. This will sound incredibly melodramatic, but there are days when I feel like that again. I'm on the cusp of 30 now, but I'm Done. I'm just waiting for my body to reach the finish line. The things I want to do are unattainable because I'm stupid and afraid. I wish I could know myself better and see what's going on, but I don't trust anyone enough to talk. Sometimes I wonder, is this it? Is this all there is? Just a gray, aching mush I haven't the will to escape. I don't know. I don't think there's much solace out there that isn't cut out of someone's skin. Um, I'm not sure what that last part means, but I can tell you I have felt like that and there is hope and do not give up. Um, and the bad news is it involves talking to someone, but there is, I don't know of a way out by ourselves. I just don't. So sending you some love. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Ian. He is gay. He's in his 30s. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. One time, my ex-boyfriend of around a year fingered me without lubricant while I was under the effects of acid. Uh, When I... When, quote, I think I asked him to to stop, he didn't, and I ended up throwing up on him, which resulted in him stopping. Uh, He's been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, my father has to date broken my nose, given me and my sister countless black eyes. He threw me down the stairs when I called him a fascist cunt. That's a great phrase. 
Fascist cunt. I gotta remember that one. And kicked me back up them when I tried to crawl away. There were countless amounts of beatings. My mother constantly insisted that without our father, we would all be left uh, without money or a home. And everything I said, uh, and everything I said, I would leave. She threatened, I think there's a typo in there. Uh, oh, every time, I think he meant every time I said I would leave, she threatened to kill both herself and my sister. Uh, my ex-boyfriend called me ugly and useless countless times. He burned me with cigarettes, and when I broke up with him, he spit in my face and said he fucked other guys the whole time we were together and that I meant nothing. Any positive experiences with your abusers? I never loved my father. My mother was weak and let me and my sister get beaten when she wouldn't leave my father. My ex-boyfriend was a lonely, abused drug addict. A day never goes by where I don't blame myself for all the done to me. Typos sometimes make it so hard. I think he meant I don't blame myself for all they did to me. I don't know. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes wish my mother would have killed herself and myself so I could have left that evil house. I hate everything. I can never be happy. At my sister's wedding last year, as I gave her away, I couldn't give a fuck and was almost jealous of her happiness. I fear I'm becoming my father every single second of every single day. Darkest secrets. I lied to my current boyfriend of five years about my past. He thinks we grew up... Uh, in care so now every day that passes i feel this chasm growing between us which i hate myself for i don't want no i just gotta assume that's an another typo we grew up in care c-a-r-e um please check your spelling people when you fill one of these out if you're doing it on your phone and it's auto correcting please um, I slash the tires on my ex-boyfriend's dad's car. Every time I visit my father's grave, uh, I both spit and piss on it. Uh, that would be funny. Uh, somebody pissing, somebody pissing on their father's grave. And they look around and they see somebody else pissing on a grave, and they both just give each other a nod. <laughs> Oh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't enjoy sex. It's just another bodily function to me. I don't fantasize about drinking or eating, and sex is even less important to me than than them. All the previous sex I've had has been degrading, so I hoped that with my current partner, loving sex would change this fact, but it has not. I don't look forward to having sex with him, and I'm disgusted at myself for this. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To the guy who drove into my dad, thank you. <laughs> to my current partner, I'm trying so hard to love you, but I just can't. I'm so sorry. What, if anything, do you wish for? That someday in the future I might actually feel something other than this utter numbness that sits on my chest all day and just gets heavier and heavier every second. Have you shared these things with others? My sister, but she doesn't even think about back then. She pretends it never happened, so I can't tell if I should be feeling how I am. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I'll never escape the past. You've got to go talk to somebody. You have to go talk to a professional about this. The stuff you've been through is so serious. And um, in instead of giving yourself the love and compassion that you deserve, you're beating yourself up for it. And nobody 
nobody would be able to endure that and not feel what you feel. Uh, your your numbness is your body's way of trying to survive, but there are better ways, and that is healing. Healing is the way to truly survive because then we can thrive. That sounded good. I think I should write that down. Some more Facebook loves. Lisa Marie Shattenkirk writes, I love when I wake up to silence. I wonder if she's related to Kevin Shattenkirk, hockey player. Ross Brown writes, I love watching friends and family succeed and emotionally grow. The feeling gets stronger with age. It's a beautiful one. Tarina Armitage writes, I love hearing a song for the first time in 20 years and amazingly knowing every single word. Aaron Nibley writes, feeling myself smiling inside my face. That's a good one. Lonnie Lane writes, I love surprising my friends by sending them some art that I have made. Andy J. Rowe writes, I love when a seemingly difficult task turns out to be easier and quicker to complete than I expected. Oh, that's a great one. I love that. I love that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Creep Show. She is... And I'm just going to read part of her survey because it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty lengthy. Uh, she's straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, my mother would grab me by my wrist and yank me when angry. And one time, she sort of shoved me violently into a wall because she was stressed out about a dinner party she was preparing for, and I had been in her way. When I was a teenager, mouthing off to my father, he would sometimes threaten violence by making a fist and giving me a look like I'm so angry at you, I'm restraining myself from hitting you. Uh, sexual uh, female babysitter forced me to watch lesbian porn at age nine and then touched me and made me touch her and humiliated me when I got aroused. From a young age, mother spoke to me about orgasms and sex with my father and then about her affairs with other men. She would tell me these things and I would keep secrets for her. Eventually, I asked her to stop telling me things, but she wouldn't and was angry at me for, quote, censoring her. Oh my God, what a narcissist your mother is. Um, My father used to bathe with me and let me touch his penis when I was a child. I know what my father's naked body looks like, and he once was touching himself under his pants while we watched a show together. He would also objectify me and was always walking in on me when I was changing. He walked around naked or in boxers, uh, and I had to ask him not to, and then he would be irritated. Well, double winner. Both narcissists. Um... Any positive experiences with the abusers? Absolutely. I knew my parents loved me. Conditionally, but there was genuine love in there somewhere. To this day, I can rationalize away their responsibility and end up questioning if I'm not just being melodramatic and selfish. No, you're not. You're not. Those were serious violations. Uh, Darkest secrets. Uh, I get sexually aroused when I hear about really sadistic things. Human bodies having been dismembered. Human sacrifice. Serial killers, uh, lobotomizing people and keeping them as sex slaves, etc. The most depraved things cause a physiological sexual arousal response and I immediately push them out of my head. Themes of humiliation, defiling of innocence, etc. are also erotic for me. Sometimes I think about kissing my daughter's vagina. Hearing about incest also causes me to become aroused. I had to stop watching the show the following 
uh, because I would get so aroused when people were, were killed that that caused me to feel really nauseated. Darkest Secrets. I think the only things I feel ashamed about are showing my baby brother's penis to a friend and perhaps touching it or letting her touch it. I felt that he didn't want us to, but I did it anyway. I occasionally had sexual feelings for little boys I'd babysit. When I was 11, I introduced a younger female friend, she was about nine, to the idea of sexual experimentation. I explained about games I'd played with my friends, and she was aroused. She asked me to show her. I wanted to so badly, but I felt guilty to expose her, so I refused. She was begging me. It made me feel really awful. I used to experiment with many of my female friends during playdates, but was seldom the initiator. I would get so turned on, but after the game was over, I'd be repulsed. I didn't want this family friend to have to feel that repulsed feeling. I've never had an orgasm with another person. Sometimes I think about seeing a female dominatrix so that I would be forced to have an orgasm. But I think just like when I masturbate to certain kind of porn themes, I'd probably feel nauseated and repulsed immediately afterwards. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Incest, parent to child. Older lesbian, seducing young girl. Big dick and small tight teen. Public humiliation and painful sex. Fisting. Uh... Thinking about these themes makes me feel out of control and incredibly aroused, but there's no way to feel that level of arousal in a scenario that I actually want to experience. I know if I try to incorporate these themes into my sex life with my husband, I will feel repulsed. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? You have no power over me. Um, and then she writes, it isn't yet true. I'm not sure who that would be directed to. What, if anything, do you wish for? A sense of safety, to know that I am good, and to know that I am loved unconditionally. I'd like to have the opportunity to experience my body and my desire without all the, this noise. Have you shared these things with others? I have shared most of it, most of this, if not all of it. I had a therapist who invalidated my experience of abuse and refused to label my experience. Even after I explained that I was having trouble not blaming myself and holding on to the truth of my experience, he refused to label it abuse because he didn't want to attribute intent to what my parents had done. This was terrible for me, as I always have said that they weren't trying to hurt me, and that was a reason I couldn't hold them accountable. It took a while, but I left that therapist. Good for you. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel that it's organizing for me. Sometimes I feel diffuse and struggle to feel that I have the right to heal because there's nothing to heal from. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If anyone told me the things I just wrote, I would want to comfort them and tell them they are not alone and that what they've experienced is very damaging. It's so hard to give ourselves such compassion. This is because I have never been mirrored, seen, honored by my parents, and so it's hard to do that for myself. This is why therapy and support groups are so necessary. When you hear yourself invalidating your own experience, ask yourself if you'd talk this way to your best friend if she came to you with her story. Reboot and talk to yourself as you would to your best friend. Amen. Amen. This is, um, these are a couple more um, happy moments from Facebook. Uh, Shannon Stein writes, I love when my kids laugh. That's sweet music for my soul. Michaela Colvin writes, I love getting the exact middle seat at the movie theater. 
It's the best seat in the house. That's a great one. Stephen Harvell writes, I love sitting with good friends and having real but funny conversations. Daniel Patrick Hill writes, I love playing Pokemon trading card game, especially with my kids. Patty Woods Laveau writes, I love when the perfect amount of caffeine hits at just the right time and I get shit done. Mine is close. I love when the perfect amount of caffeine hits at just the right time and I shit. How about that? And that is not a lie. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Fun Employment. And she writes, I am bipolar and have always had trouble finding and keeping jobs. I started working for a CPA early last year and it's been the most traumatic job of my life. I was constantly told how worthless I am, that I was replaceable, how I wasn't qualified for the job. I even gave up community theater, which was my one true love. But the money was great and I am single and supporting myself, so I kept it. I began getting overworked and was eventually fired for, quote, inability to complete assigned tasks, meaning no unemployment pay because Georgia sucks. Fortunately, a local music venue took note of my volunteer experience at the theater and hired me immediately. The pay is about a third of what I was making, so I will have to pick up a second job. But they've already made me feel more valued and secure in two weeks than I felt at that firm in a year and a half. I learned last week that my boss at the old job had been purposefully overworking me. She disliked me for religious reasons. She's Mormon and I'm a Unitarian Universalist, which is a vastly misunderstood in small southern towns. She was hoping I would quit since she couldn't fire me over a religious disagreement. I didn't, so she found another reason. After I was fired, she attended a performance at the venue where I'm currently working and I was tending bar. I served her drinks happily, reveled in her disgust when the manager complimented me, and watched her husband get sloppy drunk and dance with underage girls. I didn't bat an eye when she didn't tip on her $75 bill, but my co-workers did. One followed her out and asked her if there was a problem with the service. She simply rolled her eyes and said she had paid me for the last year and a half. She didn't owe me anything. The partner she works for at the firm was at the event as well, and we were all standing outside when this exchange occurred. He always liked me but didn't work directly with me, so he had no say over my termination, but he walked up and he put $500 in my hand, apologized for her behavior, and promised a good recommendation for any future position I decided to per- I would decide to pursue. The woman who didn't tip, my old boss, then proceeded to scream obscenities at everyone around until she was interrupted by her own vomiting in the middle of the street. I finally found the one bitch on the planet bigger than my old boss. Karma. (laughs) That is fantastic. And then uh, just a couple of more loves from Facebook. Uh, Becky Sioka? Chioka, uh, I love the tiptoe dance my one cat does to alert me that they are low on food and water. Amy Dolan writes, I love seeing my patients get better by the time they leave the hospital. Barbara Kyle Sensib- Sensiba uh, writes, and this is this is the, the last one, I just love this one, when cherry blossoms start falling off the trees, it looks like pale pink snowfall and my covered car looks like a parade float. A beautiful, beautiful image to end on. Well, I'm proud to report I've start I've stopped sweating. How do you like that? Um, I 
I had something I wanted to say, and I can't remember what it is now. You know, I just, I just hope if you're out there, I, I read more than one survey tonight where someone was just so cynical about there being the possibility of their life getting better, of their pain ending, of not feeling stuck. And I just want to assure you that it is possible. It's not easy. It doesn't happen overnight, but it is possible. And it starts with, with talking to someone. And yeah, sadly, sometimes the first person or maybe even the first couple of people that we go to, it's not met as ideally as it should because maybe those people aren't prepared. Maybe they, they, they don't know how to have an emotional conversation. You know, they're emotionally or spiritually ignorant. But there are so many in the pe- people in the world who are capable of an emotionally mature conversation who are compassionate and who do want to help and they're everywhere and you will find them if you just keep reaching out for help and um i did i did and it um say it all the time but it saved my life and i'm so glad i didn't make that decision to end my life i'm so glad i'm so glad i'm here I'm so glad I got to see more of my life. I wouldn't I wouldn't get to experience this beauty with you guys. And yeah, I wouldn't also there, you know, there's terrible things that I see and experience, but the the beauty and the the good stuff so far outweighs the stuff that's hard to look at and hard to see and feel. Um yeah, enough of my blabbering. Just know you're not alone and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.